0: We know that you want to build your family on the right foundation from the very start, the foundation of Jesus Christ. Concordia Publishing House offers more than 8,000 products for churches, schools, and homes, dedicated customer service, and an experienced staff to help you focus on what matters most. Click to connect at cph.org. Concordia Publishing House, listening, responding, providing for God's people. Concordia Publishing House, cph.org. Stands of the hymn, Praise the One Who Breaks the Darkness. This is an epiphany hymn, but it's also, in a lot of ways, a nice bridge into the season that we are closely approaching, the season of Lent, and as we end one season and begin another, looking forward to Sunday morning, we have Jesus in the Gospel reading, Luke chapter 18. First, he tries to dispel a little darkness with his disciples by predicting his death. He tells them what's coming, what he intends to do, what he is intent upon doing, and then he heals a blind man. Another picture of opening the eyes of faith. Greetings and welcome to Issues, Etc. on this President's Day. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Joining us for our Looking Forward to Sunday morning series, Pastor David Peterson here in a moment. In the second hour of the program, we begin a new series. Actually, it's a new chapter of an old series that we're doing with Pastor Paul McCain of Concordia Publishing House, walking through the Lutheran Confessions. We'll be in the power and primacy of the Pope, talking about the Pope's claim to be the, not just the first among equals, but the only, the sole representative of Christ on the earth through which all other bishops, pastors, have their authority, and how the Lutheran Reformers dealt with that claim in the 16th century. Pastor David Peterson is a regular guest. He joins us weekly for our Looking Forward to Sunday morning series according to the one-year system of readings, the one-year lectionary. He's pastor of Redeemer Lutheran Church in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and editor of Godistines, the Journal of Lutheran Liturgy. David, welcome back to Issues etc. Thank you, Todd. For all the readings and all the properties that are coming up for this coming Sunday, you say that the one thing, among others, the, the most important thing we, we, that we need to keep in mind as we look forward to Sunday morning is that Jesus goes to the cross on purpose. What do you mean by that, and why is that so important?
1: Well, he's, he does it deliberately, willfully. Uh, he goes as a lamb to the slaughter, but he understands what's happening, he knows his purpose and his mission. Um, I mean, that's very clear in the Gospels and, and from the Old Testament, but sometimes it's portrayed in kind of modern idea as though Jesus is like Gandhi and he's accidentally a martyr or is surprised by what happens. But it's a, I mean, he's willfully and deliberately coming to pay the price for our sins, and he understands. He knows what that cost, what it will cost him. Um, so that that's the, uh, it's very much setting up the, uh, the whole purpose of Lent, leading to Good Friday and Easter,
0: I think often we kind of try to occupy a halfway house between Jesus is a victim of circumstance and what you're talking about, and we say, "Well, God had laid out a plan for Jesus, and Jesus is following it," and that is still one step removed. Uh, this is Jesus' plan, isn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's his Jesus plan, and we're not. It's true that this is. It happens at the time of his humiliation. That that means that even though uh, he is true God and true man. As a man, he does not always fully—he uh, does not always and fully use his divine rights and attributes. That, so he does deny himself uh, from basically the time of his conception up until the resurrection. In that, as a man, that's why he can say things like, "No man knows." He doesn't even know the, the time uh, of the, com- the second coming and so forth. So it's not that he doesn't—he knows necessarily everything. But it's clear that he understands, as we'll see in the Gospel for this coming Sunday, I mean, he understands that he's going to be betrayed, that he's going to, die, he's going to be tortured and uh, die a violent death, and that that is a, as a sacrifice and ransom to atone for the sins of the world. So it's a very willful and deliberate choice that he has made to go uh, in obedience to his Father for this purpose.
0: So take us into that Gospel reading, Luke chapter 18.
1: All right, Luke chapter 18 from the ESV, starting at verse 31. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked, and shamefully treated, and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging, And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God.
0: So what do we find there? First of all, um, there's a lot of, uh, there are a lot of words that we need to, uh, individual words we need to deal with. What are they?
1: Yeah, well, I want to deal with this word that he's handed over, that he's going up to Jerusalem. Um, and uh, and a couple other things. But, I mean, the, the basic story, the summary would be that, that Jesus, this is the third time now in, in Luke's gospel, and he does the same thing in Matthew and Mark, that he explicitly lays out that he's going to be betrayed, that he's going to be treated horribly, that he's going to be violently killed, and that he's going to rise. So uh, uh, this is his third, we call this his passion prediction. Um, and if there's any pastors listening that want to study this, uh, the Raymond Brown, he's a Roman Catholic higher critic, but he wrote a book, uh, "The Death of the Messiah," that's very helpful on this part. In one of the appendixes. lays them all side by side. So the first thing he does is he lays this out, and it's not unlike after the confession of Saint Peter in Matthew 16 or something. He says, "This is this is what's going to happen," and they don't get it. And then their blindness is really—it's a, a historical account, but it's illustrated in a sense by the blind man uh, on the roadside. Who recognizes Jesus as the Messiah, um, so the disciples are spiritually blind this man is physically blind, but he can see by faith what they can't so he's told Jesus of Nazareth is passing by, but he cries out to the Son of David that is to the Messiah, and he asks for mercy, uh, and then of course he's healed so so that's the the story as it were and it's it's good that those two those two events are kept together because they do. They, they are together in Luke's Gospel, and uh, they do. Uh, it's the context of the whole thing. So, I mean, it's just always worth sort of noting, I like it when the translations bring this out, what Jesus says, they're going up to Jerusalem. You always go up to Jerusalem in the New Testament. Um, that's just because the Holy Land's hilly, and the language reflects that, so you're usually going up or down. But it's also, of course, symbolic that uh, Jerusalem is the center of the, the universe, because that's where the temple is, where God has promised to be according to his grace. And then, of course, the new temple, that's where it's going to be torn down and rebuilt, uh, even our Lord. So it's it's just a nice little bit of language there.
0: He gives us, and Jesus does this in several places. I'm thinking about uh, later in Luke's Gospel, with on the road to Emmaus, uh, in Luke, oh golly, what is it... Uh, Oh, well, elsewhere in the in the Gospel of Luke, and then in the other Gospels, kind of, this is how I read the the, old, the whole Old Testament, the Jesus reading of the Old Testament, when he says everything that is written about the Son of Man. He's, he's saying the Bible's about him, isn't he?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, everything that is written about the Son of Man, right? So the whole Bible is, is going to be fulfilled in Christ, because it all testifies of Christ. So everything that's written about him is going to be fulfilled. It's not like that's you know, the Old Testament has five or six passages about Jesus, and those are going to be fulfilled. Now, he means, he means all that the prophets have done. The whole purpose of the Bible is to is to point to the Messiah, is to, is to speak to man uh, the good news of the reconciliation that God himself has provided for us in this sacrifice. And it doesn't matter if that's in the Old Testament or the New Testament. It's all pointing to the same thing. Uh, I think the greatest heresy, by the way, of our age is not feminism. The greatest heresy of our age is dispensationalism. Dispensationalism is just demonic because it teaches the idea that the old te- people in the old Testament, God used to save people by works, or or God is a racist and will save some people just because they're ethnically Jewish. Uh, so those people can be saved apart from faith, apart from the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's just horrific. The Bible is unified uh, God has one will, one word, and He's and it's a word of grace. Right from the very beginning, when He's seeking them in the garden, and not He's not seeking them to kill them. Uh, everything is about God speaking us, calling us back uh, to Him. That He's going to take care of this in His own in His own person for us.
0: He uses this word, which uh, it's, it's translated in the tr- in the translation you used, uh, will be accomplished. But it's a pretty weighty word, isn't it?
1: It is. It's the same word that he uses on the cross. Uh, It is finished, uh, telestify. So here it's in the future. But uh, it's the word to be perfected or to be completed, uh, to be finished. So I don't know. I find accomplished. I'm not thrilled with that translation. I think that the tie is explicit in Luke's Gospel, uh, even though he says it is finished in John's Gospel. That uh, the, The point here is that he's predicting, he understands that his death on the cross Um, is going to complete, fulfill, finish all of the law's demands, everything that the law might accuse us of or ask of us, and everything that God has promised. It's all there. This is the culminating moment of of the history of the whole universe. So it is a packed word, and it definitely ties it in uh, in an important semantic way.
0: You you say finished, uh, not just finished as like another thing checking off your list— but this is the completion forever. It's done.
1: Yeah, and they've got a nice grammatical thing here. That's, it's, that's, uh, this should be tr- um, in, in When Jesus says it is finished on the cross, not here. Here it's in the future tense. But on the cross, he uses the perfect tense. So in English, the perfect tense would be, you know, I had been doing something, or I have done something. The, uh, that's how we render it in English. But in Greek, uh, aspect is more important than time. So in English, we tend to think about past, present, and future, and that's how our tenses run. But in, in Greek, they're more interested in whether an action was ongoing or uh, incomplete or had been finished. So when they use the perfect tense, it's best to translate almost in every case with an, uh, uh, an English present because it's uh, punctiliar durative. So what he says is when he says, it has been finished in the perfect tense, We translate that because it's simplest to say it is finished, because that's what it means. But it would be better almost if we said it has been finished and it is finished and it will be finished forever. It's never not going to be finished because it has this the the perfect tense then has this. It's this punctiliar moment, this instant, but then it has consequences into eternity. It continues. So you have the you have it in the same word. The same tense is used in that same sentence in our reading for Sunday, with it is written. That's actually a perfect tense in Greek. And we don't say it has been written, um, because if we say it has been written, that might make it, it sounds almost in English like, well, maybe it's been erased. You know, maybe it was written, but it no longer is. So we really want to convey, well, I mean, Jesus is very much conveying that uh, what he does once for all on the cross is an enduring, um, is an enduring reality that isn't going to stop. It's finished, and there's never going to be anyone to accuse you. There's never going to be a law that's going to come back. There's never going to be a judgment against you because he has absorbed and taken and paid all of it.
0: Pastor David Peterson is our guest, pastor of Redeemer Lutheran Church in Fort Wayne, Indiana. He edits Godistines, the Journal of Lutheran Liturgy. When we come back, we're going to talk about Jesus' description of what he's going to complete there when he gets to Jerusalem. He begins by describing it, as being handed over to the Gentiles. We'll start there with Pastor David Peterson right after this.
2: Mount Zion Lutheran Church in Greenfield, Wisconsin is a congregation of those gathered by the Spirit of the Lord around His saving word and sacraments. At the center of our life together is the divine service of the risen Jesus, the Lamb of God who was slain, who takes away the sin of the world. If you are in the Milwaukee area, we invite you to share with us in our Lord's gifts of forgiveness and new life. Services are on Saturdays at 5 p.m. and Sundays at 9 a.m. For more information, visit our website at mountziongreenfield.org.
0: What if we made it clear to the Sunday morning visitor that Jesus is actually present, forgiving sins? I've written the second part of my essay, Lord's Day, Lord's House, Lord's Supper, and you can read it in the latest Issues Etc. journal. Just click the red subscription button in the right-hand column at issuesetc.org. The Wittenberg Trail feature details Pastor Eric Rapp's journey, from the New Age through Methodist Pietism to Confessional Lutheranism. The free online Issues Etc. Journal. Old Theology, New Technology. You're listening to Issues Etc. Do you have a student finishing up eighth grade at a Lutheran school? Do you wish there were a Lutheran high school close to where you live so your student could continue going to a Lutheran school? What if there was an opportunity for high school students in public or Lutheran school to take classes like Latin, Logic, and hard-hitting theology courses? Well, there is. It's called Wittenberg Academy, the first completely online classical Lutheran high school. Visit our website, wittenbergacademy.org, to find out more. The only thing that the devil has on you is your sin. Listen to chapel services live weekday mornings from Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana at issuesetc.org. But your sin, every last bit of it, is died for by Jesus, covered with his blood, forgiven at his word. Morning Chapel from Kramer Chapel, live weekday mornings, 9 Central, 10 Eastern, 8 Mountain, and 7 Pacific at issuesetc.org. Stanza 2 of the hymn, Praise the One Who Breaks the Darkness. Pastor David Peterson is our guest as we look forward to Sunday morning according to the one-year lectionary. Looking at the Gospel reading, Luke 18. Pastor Peterson, let's stay with the Gospel reading for for a little bit here, where Jesus describes what he's about to go and complete, and he begins by describing it as being handed over to the Gentiles. What's there for us?
1: Well, we've got this. It's a beautiful word again in Greek. That it's the same word that Saint Paul uses in uh, 1 Corinthians 11, with the um, that it, what he's. It's it's the word for tradition. So uh, Saint Paul says, "I what I have received, I am handing on to you." And he's talking about the words of institution and the holy communion. So it's this. Uh, you can never. You can only hand over something that's been received. Um, so Judas can. Judas is betraying our Lord. You can only betray someone that you love. You can't be betrayed by your enemies. you're betrayed by your friends or by those who love you. Uh, so you, you you see this kind of handing over, and there is also it's not just Judas that hands that betrays Jesus and hands him over. The Father does too um, and uh, and Jesus allows himself to be uh, because he is being handed over for this as payment for us in our place this whole this whole satisfaction. So that connection with the sacrament is really, I think, uh, with that word. Uh, and we hear it, um, I mean, in English, the way we hear it on Sunday morning is, Our Lord Jesus Christ on the same night in which he was betrayed. And that's the same word here that, that's used for, I can't remember, was it delivered or handed over? But, uh, but it means, anyway, to hand over, to betray, uh, to pass on. And that's what uh, the Father is doing. He's passing the Son on to the devil so that we wouldn't go there.
0: Okay, and does this Gospel reading uh, very nicely kind of bring us right up to Lent?
1: Oh, it just does. its I mean, it's such a nice focal point for us that uh, with Ash Wednesday being the Wednesday after this Gospel, um, we see again that G- Jesus is willfully going, that he knows what he's doing, uh, that he's doing it without regret, and with, he doesn't hold a grudge against us because we're making him do it. Um, you know he's not passive aggressive, but uh, and that uh, this is where we're headed, and the end's not in doubt. I mean it's so it's so significant and and so critical that in each of these three very explicit passion predictions in the gospels that follow the in the synoptic gospels that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke that follow this pattern is necessary that the Son of Man and so forth. They all three of them every time include, or all nine of them I should say include that he will rise on the third day. Uh, the resurrection is always in sight. It's always understood. Uh, Jesus goes willfully, recognizing the terrible things that he's going to have to endure, both physically and spiritually, but also with full confidence, full confidence and no doubt that his Father will raise him from the dead and he will be vindicated. He he knows that, and he never wavers in it. I mean, that's, that's of course, uh, so shocking and almost impossible to imagine for us, because because of our original sin and the actual sins and the way we've corrupted ourselves, we really can't imagine that level of confidence and, and trust that he just obediently, uh, I mean, it's, it's so, it's so typified, so beautifully typified with the near sacrifice of Isaac in Genesis 22. Uh, one of the things that we, it's always worth uh, reminding ourselves of when we think about, about that is that Abraham's really an old man in those days. And, uh, and he's weak. And, uh, you know, it's not like he, phys- he can uh, hold Isaac down against his will. If Isaac wiggles and tries to get away, he'd easily get away, that, uh, you know, Isaac has to help him. And that's, uh, that's our Lord, too. You know, he's, he's not fighting against the Father. He wants to make this sacrifice because he wants us. I mean, he wants to obey his Father's will, and he loves his Father, but he also loves us and, and wants us to be redeemed.
0: There's a very strong liturgical connection in the phrase drawn from this that's twice repeated by the blind man in this in this gospel reading. Lord, have mercy, or in this case, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Talk about that, if you would.
1: Well, that's right. We and that's a, a normal part of the liturgy, part of the ordinaries. Those parts that that means the the ordinaries are the parts of the liturgy that are repeated every week. So they're the things that we ordinarily do. And one of the things we do every week, we, we sing or, or say, usually sing, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy. It's called the Kyrie, because in Greek the word for Lord is Kyrie. So Kyrie eleison. And uh, it comes in the liturgy uh, just after the uh, the confession and, and absolution. So we've been cleansed, uh, we've been absolved, we've been prepared to, we're, we're being prepared to hear the Word of God, and and, and then it's, it's like in that moment we pause and we say, Lord, have mercy. And there are, I think, I can't remember if it's five or six times in the Gospels where people come to Jesus with this phrase. We've got the lepers, the Canaanite woman, the father of the epileptic, uh, the blind men by the side of the road, this guy. So when they come and they say, Lord, have mercy, he always does. I mean, that's just the historic facts of the way the Gospels are. And, And we take on their prayer. Uh, The prayer of the blind man, and we make it our prayer liturgically. We say we want to be with them, we want to stand with the blind man, and we and the lepers and so forth, and receive the mercy that they did. Now, what's sort of funny about this is that if you read like liturgical books and liturgical scholars, they will all say that the Kyrie is is a word of praise or a song of praise in the liturgy. It's a moment of joy. And I think this strikes us as funny, because if we're saying, "Lord, have mercy," um, that sounds like something very humble and uh, something very needy that we're begging. And it's true, in a sense we are. But the reason that it's liturgically praise, and musically that's, that the music does reflect that idea. It's not this like somber you know thing. it's a joyful thing. The reason that is is because when we ask God to have mercy. We are recognizing Him as He wants to be recognized, as He wants to be known, as His truest character. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. His mercy endures forever. And, and uh, so when we are saying, Lord, have mercy, and saying we want to be the blind man, we want to be the beggar, we want to be the, the lepers, uh, we are also saying we want Jesus to be our Jesus. We want Him to be who He has promised to be, who the Scriptures reveal Him to be, and we want to, uh, Him to come to us in His truest character, not his alien character, his wrath, but his true character as he wants to be known. So it's really, anytime we have in the gospel one of those accounts, it's very pointed. And it it does us well to remember and to to think of those accounts as we sing those words. Uh, What a joyous thing it is to to boldly come to God as those absolved, knowing that he loves us, and, and, and to ask him again to have mercy. I mean, it's a bit like a child asking uh, her mother, you know, do you love me? I mean, she knows the answer, but she wants to hear it, and she loves hearing it. And mothers don't mind the question, you know. They're glad, they're glad to say, yes, I love you.
0: This brings us uh, to the Old Testament reading, which is, if I'm not mistaken, Isaiah 35. What would you say of that, briefly?
1: Well, it's, uh, this is uh, uh, the prophecy of the, uh, of the Messianic age. And uh, Isaiah is told to firm up the weak knees and strengthen the weak hands and so forth. And then told, because your God will come with a vengeance, he will come with recompense, he will save you. And then we get this, uh, that the blind are going to see, the deaf are going to hear, the lame are going to walk or or jump or something, and the uh, mute are going to sing. And... uh, those are all just, you know, this is what happens with the Messiah. The people are to be comforted by the preaching of Isaiah that tells them the Messiah is going to come, and is going to rescue you from the devil, and you're going to be, you're going to be spared, and you're going to be saved, and all the horrible effects of sin are going to be reversed. And most of those things we see foreshadowed in miracles that the prophets do. You know, the prophets perform miracles like, uh, you know, cleansing leper, Naaman, and, and and those sorts of things. But one miracle that is never recorded by any of the prophets in the Old Testament or anybody ever doing is the healing of blindness. Um, it just doesn't ever happen in the Old Testament, at least it isn't recorded. And it is explicit here in Isaiah 35 that that's a, deli- that's a specifically a sign of the Messianic Age. So we see that being fulfilled in the healing of this blind man. Uh, Jesus does all of those kinds of miracles. He does the other miracles too. But there is a kind of pointedness to blindness um, because it is symbolic of not recognizing God as he wants to be known in, in his mercy and the Messiah, not recognizing uh, the necessity and the goodness of Christ going to the cross and dying, and that being a kind of blindness like the disciples had, and then Jesus, through mercy, uh, providing that sight and revealing that to us. So there's a, there's a great connection there between the healing of the blind man and the Isaiah text, and also the, the prediction of what's going to happen.
0: We're looking forward to Sunday morning, according to the one-year lectionary, looking at, well, we're looking at, uh, when we come back, a beautiful psalm in the intro that Jesus actually uses himself. We'll find out how he uses it. It's just positively poignant. Pastor David Peterson is our guest, editor of Godestine's The Journal of Lutheran Liturgy. Stay tuned. we have a special offer for Issues Etc. Reformation Club members. If you join or upgrade your membership in our monthly or annual giving program during January or February, we'll add the new Concordia Psalter to the list of current membership benefits, t-shirts, books, broadcast transcripts, and advertising for your confessional Lutheran congregation. You can find out the benefits of being an Issues Etc. confessor, apologist, reformer, or patron at issuesetc.org. Look for the picture of Martin Luther posting the 95 Theses or contact Craig, 618-223-8385 or Craig at issuesetc.org. Join or upgrade your membership in the Issues Etc. Reformation Club in January or February and we'll send you the new Concordia Psalter along with your other premiums, the Issues Etc. Reformation Club. For
2: 20 years, we've lifted our voices and instruments to the hymns of Stephen Starkey. Now, CPH has the first ever CD collection of Pastor Starkey's works titled We Praise You and Acknowledge You, O God. This 12-track CD includes nearly an hour of music from the most beloved Lutheran hymn writer of our time. Order now. Use promotion code URA. We praise you and acknowledge you, O God. It is only fifteen ninety nine. dollars 99 cph.org
1: The Substitute Organist Service has been a great blessing for our worship life here at Christ the King Lutheran in Riverview, Florida.
0: Pastor Kevin Yocum on the Substitute Organist Service.
1: Now our organ plays rich liturgical music every single Sunday, and it's very affordable. You pick the hymns. You pick the liturgies. It's very simple. Just know when to push play.
0: You can find out more about the Substitute Organist Service at churchmusicsolutions.com. churchmusicsolutions.com
2: The cross is our theology.
0: You're listening to Issues Etc. We talk to the biggest names in religion today. Liberal Bishop John Shelby Spong.
2: I don't think Jesus ever preached the Sermon on the Mount, for example. I don't believe anybody ever took five loaves and two fish and fed 5,000 people. I don't believe that's possible
0: to do. Liberal Bible critic Bart Ehrman. There's a difference between
1: what the historical Jesus actually said and what the Gospels say he said. And to understand what the historical Jesus was really like, we have to get behind the Gospels.
0: Muslim critic of Christianity Reza Aslan.
1: By definition, the resurrection is an ahistorical event, and so therefore historians
0: have no right, no no business uh, commenting upon it. Where else on Christian radio will you hear these guests challenged with important questions? Talk radio for the thinking Christian, Issues Etc. Listen live or on demand at issuesetc.org. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. It's Monday afternoon, February the 16th. Looking forward to Sunday morning, Pastor David Peterson is our guest, Pastor of Redeemer Lutheran Church in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Turning to the intro at this psalm that is a major feature early in the Sunday morning service, uh, this is one that Jesus himself employs. And going together with everything we're talking about here, David, it's just positively poignant. Uh, Take us into how Jesus employs this particular psalm.
1: Well, it's really fantastic. It's Psalm 31, and in verse 5... Uh, We read, into your hand I commit my spirit, you have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. And of course, we recognize that immediately, I'm sure, as one of the last words from the cross. That that this is what Jesus says from the cross. Well, that makes it really clear to us that this is a psalm that belongs in the first place, in the mouth of Jesus, on the cross. I mean, he quotes it. He says, this is my psalm. That's what he's praying while he's on the cross. It's not the only thing. He also prays, my God, my God, my wife hath forsaken me, from Psalm 22. But, but it does point out to us that this is a psalm of Christ uh, on the cross. And, and then when you go back, and we go back to like the earlier in the intro, it so earlier in the psalm, uh, you know, when he's saying, be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress, and for your name's sake you lead me and guide me. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge, and so forth. He's saying this. After he has already said, "My God, My God, why hast Thou forsaken me?" So he is in the absolute depths of of his suffering and his sorrow. I mean, his physical pain is is at its worst. He's a he's about to expire; uh, body and soul be separated. The the spiritual distress of how he is forsaken by the Father and all uh, becomes guilt and becomes sin for us, even though he has no sin or guilt of his own. And all those accusations that are false, in a sense, uh, uh, that are, would be true against us are leveled against him, and he's counted as all. the So this horror that he's enduring, uh, and, and in the midst of that, he's saying to the Father, you are my rock and my fortress, and your namesake. sake you lead me and guide me, and I take refuge in you. It is. It is perfect faith, right? He completely believes, no wavering again. Uh, So it goes right up. He expects the resurrection. He expects to be vindicated. He expects the devil to be defeated. Uh, I mean, and expects really too weak of a word. I should say he knows these things. He knows he'll be raised. He knows the devil will be defeated. And therefore, even in the midst of that, uh, there's no malice. There's no anger. There's no bitterness in him. Uh, towards the Father, or toward us. But he's actually rejoicing there because this is the Father loving the world, and he's loving the world, and the Spirit's loving the world, and we're being reconciled and redeemed to the Father.
0: This also explains, <clears throat> and you mentioned this earlier in our conversation, the manner in which Jesus goes, captured so poignantly in that Lenten Him, a goes on goes uncomplaining forth, that he, as you just said, he goes, it is his joy to face the shame the humiliation, and even the sorrow of the cross.
1: Yeah, I know. It's sort of, it's mind-boggling, but absolutely it is, because because he loves the Father and he loves us. And he he goes silent, uncomplaining, but not in ignorance. He's not stupid. You know, lambs don't really know what's going to happen, but he does. Uh, And he's, you know, he he lays himself for it. Again, that, that picture of Isaac, you know, Isaac knows what's going on. And, uh, you know, to climb up there and allow his father to bind him to the altar and raise the knife and, and to wait for it and to believe that somehow God is going to be good through this, it's remarkable. I mean, Isaac's only a human being, and it's remarkable. Uh, when our Lord does it, he does it perfectly. And to have this psalm in his mouth, it's 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 just amazing. And it's I think it's, well, I mean, I find it quite moving and comforting. And that's why also then, you know, we don't need to avert our gaze from Good Friday. I, will, I have sometimes over the years uh, run into Christians or had parishioners that didn't like to come to church on Good Friday because it was too sad. Pastor, I just can't take it. It's too sad. <laughs> and uh, because it was too emotional and so forth. Well, I mean, I get that in a sense, but I would always encourage them, you know, come and you, you, you need to try to adjust your lens a little bit. While we're sorry for our sins, we're not ashamed of the cross. Uh, it's our greatest joy, and uh, we don't need to look away. You know, uh, Mel Gibson, he did a beautiful job with that movie, but he's completely wrong. Um, maybe not completely wrong, but he's wrong in that his uh, Mel Gibson and the kind of Latin mass folks that he's part of, what they want to do is they want to create this spiritual experience by pain, so you're supposed to think about the death of Jesus in, in, you know, so, so much that you actually cause yourself mental, spiritual torment and anguish and thereby kind of experience something of what Jesus experienced on the cross and then you have this like bond to him. And, and that's really what Gibson wants to do with that movie. He wants to hurt you so that you will have that connection to Jesus on the cross. Well, that's just horrible. Um, Jesus died to spare us that pain, not to create it. He suffers it for us, not so that we would suffer that with him. Um, so I'm a big fan of crucifixes, I think, and I'm, I actually like that movie. I think it's helpful you know, to, to, to think about, to reflect upon, to contemplate the horror that our Lord endured for us, and to see it depicted can be very useful, but at the same time, never, 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 without knowing where it ends, that it ends in the resurrection and that he does it willingly, joyfully, as you said. He knows what he's doing. He wants to do it, and he's glad to do it. I mean, it would be like, you know, if you come home for, you know, you're off at college and you come home for Christmas uh, break and your mother knows you loves, blue, loves blueberry pancakes and she makes you blueberry pancakes, and then you come down and you start bawling because you know, uh, oh that was so hard for her to make those. I mean she makes them enjoy. It's not a it's a it's it is a labor, but she wants to do it. And in fact, she doesn't want anybody else making you blueberry pancakes. Because about five years later you come home with your wife for Christmas break and your wife gets up early and makes the blueberry pancakes before your mom can come up get up and that's not gonna go good. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> So, so in other
0: words, whether it's Good Friday or the anticipation of Good Friday, which is of of course every Sunday, um, Jesus doesn't want us feeling sorry for him on the cross.
1: No, he doesn't want us feel sorry. He wants to do this for us. He loves do. It's a labor of love, and he doesn't want anybody else to do it. And he wants to do it for us.
0: This collect prayer. What is it for this coming Sunday, and how does it connect into the theme established by the by the gospel reading?
1: Well, the, the petition, the thing that the collect is asking is, uh, it says, having set us free from the bonds of sin, deliver us from every evil. So uh, the, the passion prediction, what Jesus tells us is going to happen there, shows us how we're set free and delivered from every evil. I mean, this prayer can only be asked and answered if the demands of justice have already been met. So it's, it's, it stands very much like when we're, we're saying the Kyrie, because we know what he's done.
0: Another psalm is found in the gradual, this little verse that occurs in the midst of the readings from Psalm 77. What's there that we ought to take note of as we look forward to Sunday morning?
1: Well, all we're going to hear in the gradual are verses uh, 14 and 15. You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. That's all we're going to hear, just those couple verses. And uh, that's great, sounds fine. But uh, if we know the whole psalm, in verse 9 it reads, Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? So it's, those verses are actually set in the context of, of sorrow and frustration, like unto the uh, Psalm 22, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And the answer, has God forgotten to be gracious, is obviously no, he has not. He does work wonders, and he will redeem his people. And the Christ takes that on faith. So it's a psalm that embodies uh, that law-gospel dynamic that all Christians experience and know, and that Jesus uh, also embodies in his confidence in the right answer and in the end. And we're just hearing the right answer in the gradual, but it's kind of nice to know the whole thing.
3: Uh,
0: The epistle reading, 1 Corinthians 13, this is uh, ordinarily in a lot of people's minds, a, p- a passage reserved for marriage, kind of an odd place to put it, especially given where it appears here as we anticipate Lent.
1: Yeah, it's the great, it's the great love chapter. Love suffers all things. I, I think the best way to understand this is not as an ode to something abstract, you know, just oh, love is so wonderful, you know, it's something. So we can sort of sew First Corinthians thirteen onto pillows, you know, and and uh, uh, crochet it and so forth, but rather that. 1 Corinthians 13 is really a description of the Holy Spirit. So God is love, specifically the Father, this is St. Augustine, the Father is the lover, the Son is the beloved, and then the Holy Spirit is love. And if uh, you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're nothing worse than a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. The Holy Spirit is patient and kind. The Holy Spirit does not envy or boast. The Holy Spirit is not arrogant or rude. The Holy Spirit does not insist on his own way, is not irritable or resentful, does not rejoice in wrongdoing. And then the Holy Spirit rejoices in the truth, that is, in the Christ, because he is the way, the truth, and the life. And the Holy Spirit bears all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So as Christ sets his face towards Jerusalem, uh, he isn't doing this apart from the Father and the Spirit. And he isn't going apart from the Father and the Spirit. The Spirit uh, empowers him, enables him, comforts him with the ministry of angels and so forth so that he can set his face there in perfect love. The point of it is 1 Corinthians 13 describes perfect divine love. The love that we have for one another, that husband and wife have for one another here on earth is a reflection of that, that is always somewhat imperfect because of sin and, and, and so forth. So... It does fit beautifully here as a setup for Lent because this is all about Jesus fulfilling the law and love fulfills the law.
0: So it fits it it fits beautifully with the yeah. gospel reading. I mean, Jesus is essentially it's it's the it's the it's kind of the poetic description of what Jesus is saying to his disciples.
1: Yeah, he's in, in what Jesus is doing for his disciples. Yeah. This is what what drives him, is is this perfect love that doesn't insist on its own way. I mean, what what a marvelous—I mean, Jesus on the cross is not insisting on his own way.
0: When we come back, our conversation with Pastor David Peterson continues looking forward to Sunday morning. I want to stay with this idea of the tendency for us to abstract the idea of love. Sometimes it actually gets in the way of seeing how it is God really loves us. We'll talk about that after this with Pastor David Peterson.
2: Listen to the best of the Church's music for the Epiphany season at
3: LutheranPublicRadio.org.
2: Sacred music for the Epiphany season,
0: 24-7. LutheranPublicRadio.org. Did you know that Luther Academy has been providing continuing education for confessional Lutheran pastors and lay people worldwide for more than 20 years? Luther Academy promotes confessional Lutheran theology through conferences, scholarly exchanges, and publications like Logia, the Confessional Lutheran Dogmatic Series, and Luther Digest. Find out more about Luther Academy and sign up for their free email newsletter at lutheracademy.com. lutheracademy.com Confessional
2: Lutherans. We've got your back. You're listening to Issues etc. Hello, this is Pastor Kevin Golden of Village Lutheran Church in Ladue, Missouri. The saints at Village Lutheran are proud to be part of the Issues Etc. 300, sharing in their Christ-centered, cross-focused proclamation of the gospel. If you find yourself in St. Louis, join us on Sundays at 8.15 and 10.45 for the Divine Service, 9.30 for Bible Study and Sunday School, as we receive Christ's gifts of forgiveness, life, and salvation. Or visit us on the web at www.villagelutheranchurch.org. Steadfast Lutherans, people who believe that
0: traditional Lutheran preaching, liturgy, and hymnody continue to deliver Christ crucified for sinners today. The Reformation attempted to return the church's focus on what we do for God back to a focus on what God does for us, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Some things never change. The gospel is still under attack from inside and outside the church. To see how Lutheran doctrine and practice preserve the gospel, visit SteadfastLutherans.org. Stands of the hymn, Praise the One Who Breaks the Darkness. Pastor David Peterson is our guest as we look forward to Sunday morning. In about ten minutes in the second hour of the program, Pastor Paul McCain will join us. We're going to continue an ongoing series with him on the Lutheran Confessions, walking through it historically and theologically step by step, taking up the subject of the power and primacy of the Pope, a document that was formulated in 1537 by Philip Melanchthon, the author of other key Lutheran Confession documents, and it basically is the is the origin of the Lutheran teaching that the office of the papacy is the Antichrist, and it makes that case, and also a great case for the office of the ministry. That's coming up here in about 10 minutes on issues, etc. David, I wanted to stay with this idea you introduced a few minutes ago about our tendency to abstract the idea of love, and I think sometimes John 3.16 gets pressed into service into that abstraction where God so loved the world as though he loved us so much, making the cross a mere demonstration of God's love, rather than what the text actually says, God loved the world in this way, that in fact God's love is found precisely in the death of Jesus on the cross for sinners.
1: Right. That, uh, we, we get kind of screwed up by King James on that passage, because we hear the word so as an intensifier, but the word there is hutos, it's, it's thus. And it's not God loved the world so much. It's not about the depth of God's love. I mean, that's not a false sentiment, but that's not what that passage says. What that passage says is God loved the world in this way by sending his only Son. So we use the word so like that when we say, say it isn't so. Um, and, uh, right, that, that often gets misunderstood because we haven't really, our our pastors aren't working in the Greek like they should be.
0: <laughs> is that really the, the one of the, one of the key things that can be brought out here uh, in connecting the epistle and the oh, gospel reading yeah. for this coming Sunday is to say to the people uh, to make it clear in the in the in the sermon however else these texts are are treated that if you want the love of God if you want to know that God loves you if you want to be loved by God it is found there in the crucified and risen Jesus
1: yeah and i think also it's helpful to not to not think so much about trying to quantify love, trying to figure out how much God loves us, Um, you know, as though there's measures and degrees of it. So instead, as we see in in 1 Corinthians 13, this isn't about, um, you know, this isn't some, you know, Lord Byron, you know, waxing on about how much he loves us. It's it's very specific things. Love doesn't insist on its own way. Love doesn't envy. This is what love is by what love does. And, and uh, the love of God is not, you know, this great... It can be, but it, it, it's not that we should think so much about how much God loves us. But really what the Scriptures direct us to is the way God loves us, what He's done for us, and what He continues to do for us by bringing the fruits of His death and resurrection to us in word and sacrament. He didn't, that's that punctiliar durative. He didn't just love us on the cross and then leave us alone. He, he's still active and He's still continuing in the same thing.
0: Let's talk briefly about the tract. It's another uh, short verse that appears amidst the reading, Psalm 100. Uh, What would you note for us in this coming Sunday?
1: Well, this is, Make a joyful noise unto the Lord all the earth, serve the Lord with gladness. It's, 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 uh, you know, pretty well known. I mean, as we face this long road to Easter with our Lord's face set towards Jerusalem, knowing he's going to be tried in this kangaroo court in the temple— the words of uh, of the verse three of Psalm one hundred, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise, I think are really sounding, because you know, he. This is that Luke eighteen is right before Holy Week, so the next thing kind of coming is Palm Sunday, and then the next time Jesus is going to go in the temple, then is not going to be seeming with thanksgiving and praise. He's going to go in there and cleanse the temple, and uh, I mean, and then the next time he goes in, it's going to be his trial, and then he's going to go to. Uh, uh, Pilate and then he's going to be crucified so it doesn't seem like he's going into this and yet again just that same theme that we keep seeing throughout all these propers that Jesus does this with joy and he knows this is good and he loves the temple because that's where uh, that's where he can be with his people in mercy and grace and he's the new temple and all that stuff he he knows what's going to happen he's going to win back the world so that, there's, so that the world will have safe access to him again
0: the hymn of the day—it's uh, a—it's a, to my way of thinking, a beautiful bridge between Epiphany and Lent. It's an Epiphany oh, hymn yeah. that has a has a Lenten sound to it. It kind of slows us down for for Lent at the very end of Epiphany. Praise the one who breaks the darkness.
1: Yeah, this is a new hymn to me, so I'm. Um... We're going to, I think, sing it for the first time this year. The third, it, it, it is, and it, it does have this Breaks the Darkness. Epiphany is about darkness and light and all that stuff. And then it, it's only a three stanza hymn. The third stanza really uh, paraphrases the gospel for the day beautifully. Let us praise the Word incarnate, Christ who suffered in our place. Jesus died and rose victorious, that we may know God by grace, is the first half, so we have the whole vicarious satisfaction. Jesus who suffered in our place, who dies, and rose victorious right out of the prediction there that we may know God by grace uh, and, and recognize what he's doing there, unlike the disciples. And then let us sing for joy and gladness, seeing what our God has done. Let us praise the true Redeemer, praise the one who makes us one. So you have this seeing uh, thing that kind of goes along with the uh, healing of uh, blind Bartimaeus. And you also have, again this, let us sing for joy and gladness, seeing what our God has done. Not not let us be full of sorrow and feel guilty, because we see Jesus died. But, but uh, beautifully, let us sing for joy and gladness, seeing that he's died. Right? It's beautiful. It, it fits very well, I think.
0: The, the, I want to back up, actually, the second stanza that struck me, because we actually sang this on in the Divine Service just last Sunday, the church where I Serve and and uh, praise the one and it, the juxtaposition of these two struck me as as pretty small pretty brilliant. Praise the one who blessed the children with a strong yet gentle word, and then praise the one who drove out demons. Hmm. What a the polar opposite here yeah. with the piercing two edged sword, and then of course a reference to baptism. What are your thoughts there?
1: Yeah, no, I, that's great. I didn't even notice that. Right, he's gentle to the children but stern to the demons. Right, and then who brings cool water to the desert's burning sand, uh, a foreshowing of John the Baptist, and that's in isaiah thirty five too um, So if you use the isaiah thirty five text, uh, after that healing, there's all this business about the uh the the springs and the wilderness, and where the jackals are going to lie down, it's no longer going to be dusty, but a place where rushes grow. So that's a good connection, in this hymn to the Old Testament also.
0: I want to come back to something here in the last few minutes that you mentioned briefly before, and it's also part of the general theme here. Not only does Jesus know what he's doing, that he's going to the cross deliberately in love for us, but you say it demonstrates Jesus' faith. That is, he trusts his Father to raise him, and uh, he counts us worthy of the cost of his own uh, sinless life. Your final thoughts on those two points.
1: Well, this is part, as he is a man, he is a truly a man with body and soul, and he does deny himself, uh, you know, as we said, uh, during his earthly life and ministry. So he does live by faith uh, that he hears these prophetic words of the Scriptures, and he trusts and expects only good from his Father, even when he's receiving these bad things. I, I think it's a remarkable thing that probably Lutherans don't emphasize that much, but that Jesus himself has faith. And, and shows us what it is to believe in God, I mean to believe in God the father uh and and to trust in him
0: and this this uh idea that he that he values us, he counts us <laughs> who are unworthy, who are worthless in and of ourselves, worth worse than, worst than can we say worse than worthless <laughs> um worthy of his own life
1: yeah, i mean that does well i mean we're obviously not uh and and yet he you know he. He loves us. That's just all there is to it. He just loves us, and he wants us to have his best, and he wants us to be free, and he wants us to go to heaven, and he wants to do this for us.
0: Finally, with about uh, 30 seconds here, how should we wrap all this together? What should we be listening for, looking for uh, this coming Sunday?
1: Well, we should definitely, I think, expect to hear something about love, we should hear expect to hear something, um, we should always, but very pointed about the crucifixion and the resurrection. Uh, and we might also hear something about faith and sight uh, and how that those things all wrap together.
0: Pastor David Peterson is pastor of Redeemer Lutheran Church in Fort Wayne, Indiana. He's editor of Gottesdienst, the Journal of Lutheran Liturgy. You'll find a link to that and to some other works by Pastor David Peterson at our website, issuesetc.org, click Listen On Demand. David, thank you very much, and I look forward to next week. Thank you, Todd. In our two of issues, etc., on this Monday afternoon, we're going to take up a document that has—well, some Lutherans are actually embarrassed by this. They shouldn't be. It's not only a treatise from the 16th century Lutheran confessions that explains why it is the office of the papacy fits the description of Antichrist in Scripture. It's also a great treatise— on the office of the ministry as Christ has given it to the church. Pastor Paul McCann of Concordia Publishing House will be our guest right after the break.
2: Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc. is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio.